0: Imagine for a moment that you were with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration and that you saw what they saw, and then later you try to describe what you saw. We find that attempt in the breathless words of a man who was there. His name is John, and in the opening chapter of his gospel, he says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The dark light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not apprehended it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. truth. The text from my sermon is that long paragraph from Matthew that we read together just a few moments ago and the subject is obviously the transfiguration of Christ. We read Matthew's record of it. It's also found in the ninth chapter of Luke and the ninth chapter of Mark. John makes no mention of the transfiguration, possibly because he wrote much later than the others, and it had already been adequately covered. But his testimony in the verse just read indicates that he was there, for he said, and the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Transfiguration took place in the context of a retreat that Jesus had conducted with his disciples in the mountainous region near the northern city of Caesarea Philippi. It was in that time and place that Jesus asked his disciples what people were saying about him. And among other things, they reported that there was speculation that he might be Elijah. And you'll recall, because you've read it often yourselves and because you've heard it repeatedly from this pulpit, that it was on that occasion that he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And you'll recall with great joy that it was Peter echoing the praise and the confession of every true believer who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Six days after that conversation, we're told that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him on a high mountain, and there he was transfigured before them. We're not told the names of the men who were with Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, but we're probably safe in assuming that it was those 12 men with whom we most commonly associate the word disciple. But of these 12, Jesus took just three to witness his transfiguration. If our Roman Catholic brethren are right in their view of the proper governance of the Church of Jesus Christ, we would expect Jesus to take just one man. If our Congregational and Baptist friends are right, we would expect to take them all. Instead, he took just a few. Presumably the most qualified of the lot. And if you're here this morning as a convinced Presbyterian, you smile when this is pointed out to you. And you nod your head as if you find this an interesting and helpful observation. These three particular men were of unique importance and value to our Lord Jesus Christ. They were among the first that he called to full-time discipleship. In the lists of the twelve, their three names always appear first. They were the men that Jesus wanted to be near him when he prayed in the garden on the eve of his suffering. And in the early history of the apostolic church, they played unique and key roles. Peter called the first meeting of the church to order, and he was the first to preach the gospel both to Jews on one occasion and to Gentiles on another. James was so prominent and effective a leader of the church that Herod, a pagan king, had him put to death. And John was not only the constant companion of Peter, but lived longer than any of the other apostles. The others, with the exception of Judas, were godly men, they were good men, they were useful men, but these three stand apart in their usefulness and their value to the Lord. Of the twelve, it was Peter and James and John who were taken by the Lord onto a loftier peak and privileged to witness such a total transformation of his appearance as to leave no doubt in their minds about his deity. Later, we're told about Philip's questions, about Thomas's uncertainties. Matthew informs us that even after the resurrection and his appearance to his disciples, some of them still harbored doubts, but none of these questions are attributed to these three men, not after the transfiguration. We're not told how or when the events of that day started. It's intriguing to consider as a possibility that it all began very early in the morning while it was still dark. That sometime early in that morning, Jesus stirred and he approached these three men who, with the others, were still sleeping near the embers of their dying evening fire. And that he roused them from their sleep and he whispered to them, Come with me. Without disturbing the others, these four men made their way higher up onto the mountain. This is an interesting possibility because it would have avoided feelings of being left out on the part of the others. And the darkness would have made the change in Jesus' appearance all the more startling and impressive to these three men who were chosen to observe it. But however, and whenever the summons came, there is no hesitation recorded. As when he said to these same men, follow me, and they dropped their nets and left everything to follow him, so it is now. And this, of course, is what the Lord expects from us. Not, I'll get back to you later, Lord. But when we hear his voice, to rise and to follow him without question and without hesitation. When they reached the place where all of this was to take place, Matthew, who would have heard about it from the others says that Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. This vision of that bright, pure light, that is, God, made an indelible impression on John, who was there. In the first chapter of his gospel, he writes of Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. It is in John's history of Jesus' life that we hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world. In his first epistle, John wrote, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him but walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. And in the fourth chapter of Revelation, when John is privileged to stand virtually at the threshold of heaven and look into the throne room of God, he sees the throne, he's aware that someone or something occupies the throne, but all he sees emanating from that throne, throne is a bright, blinding, shimmering light. This is what these men on the mountain saw, and this is what you and I and all who truly embrace Jesus Christ by faith will see the instant that our eyes close in death. The next thing we read is that Moses and Elijah appeared with them, talking with him. Moses And Elijah two of the most familiar names from all of the history of the Old Testament but Moses and Elijah we would not be surprised to read Moses and Abraham or Moses and Isaiah or Moses and David but Moses and Elijah if you and I were called to rank the Old Testament figures In terms of their perceived importance and usefulness to God, I would imagine that most of us would put Moses at the top of that list. Of all of the Old Testament prophets, he was the one with the most dramatic call, the burning bush in a deserted and pagan land and the voice of God calling him. He was the one who was chosen by God to lead his covenant people at a time in which the once small family of Abraham was becoming the vast nation of Israel. He was the one who raised his arms, and the sea parted, and the battle went in Israel's favor, and the people were healed from the serpent's bite. He was the agent of God through whom water and manna and quail were miraculously provided to meet the needs of the people. He was the one who more than once successfully pleaded with the Lord to stay his hand of judgment on a faithless and perverse generation. And he was the one who, at God's invitation, climbed Mount Sinai, where he remained for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he returned, his face shone like the sun, and in his hands he carried laws given by God to govern his covenant people. None of us is surprised that Moses would be seen with Christ on this occasion of his transfiguration. But few of us would have expected Elijah to share that honor. I don't mean to take anything away from this great man of God. I simply mean, as many of you would also, that there are others that we would consider more worthy or likely. And in this, there's a lesson Our Bibles tell us that God often acts in ways that are not expected by human beings. And in this sense, it's important that we not put God in a box, whether or not we would expect it. Elijah is the one chosen by God to join his son and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. And given this reality, we then begin to search the Scriptures or our memory of the Scriptures to see what linked these two men, what common elements we might find in the histories of their lives and works. We start out recognizing that the differences among them are several and significant. Moses lived in the 15th century before Christ, Elijah in the ninth. Moses was a married man with children. Elijah was alone. Moses led a people numbering in the hundreds of thousands, but when Elijah took leave of history, he had but a single disciple. Moses left volumes of written records in the wake of his passing. Elijah wrote nothing that survived him. But the similarities are fascinating to consider. Both of these men confronted unbelief and its moral consequences in dramatic fashion. More miracles marked their lives individually than the life of any other man chronicled in the history of the Old Testament. Both of them were hated for their condemnation of sin. Both of them spent 40 days and 40 nights at Horeb on Mount Sinai. And it fascinated me to discover that Moses and Elijah are the only two Old Testament prophets who were followed by divinely appointed successors, Moses by Joshua and Elijah by Elisha. And the names of these two men are linked in a significant messianic prophecy found in Malachi 4, verses 4 and 5, where we read this. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, God says, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. And then he goes on immediately to say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Considering all of these similarities. And remember how Malachi joined the names of these two men, we're no longer quite so surprised as we once were that it would be Moses and Elijah who would appear talking with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. The prophet Elijah has significance to the careful student of Scripture for another reason, and that relates to the confidence that we're inclined to place in our interpretations of the Bible. The Bible is literally the Word of God. This can never be heard too often in this place or any other place of Christian worship. Every word, not just the general ideas or themes, is inspired and is exactly the word that God intends to be where it is found. To believe anything less about the Bible is to open the door to the erosion of our faith that will lead eventually And necessarily to the destruction of the Church of Jesus Christ. But as you've heard me say before, to say that the Bible is literally the Word of God is not necessarily to say that every word of the Bible is to be interpreted literally. Great damage has been done to our faith by those who insist that the meaning of every word in the scriptures is an English dictionary's first definition of that word or the first thing that comes to our mind when we read it. Examples of this abound, but I'd like to look with you at that prophecy in Malachi 4-5, where God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is the word of God. He does not say I will send you a man like Elijah. He says I will send you Elijah. A literal interpretation of this promise requires a reappearance of Elijah in sacred history and that just before the Messiah comes. The Jews of Jesus they were expecting this very thing. They asked John the Baptist, "Are you Elijah?" They speculated about Jesus, that he is Elijah. You and I are privileged to know things that they could not know. We know, for example, that the angel Gabriel was sent to Zacharias to announce to him that his wife would very soon conceive and bear a son, and that son would become the man known to us as John the Baptist. And of this particular son, the angel said to his father, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He also will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist was to go forth in the power and the spirit of Elijah. The fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy was not that Elijah in person, but of a man in the spirit and the power of Elijah. When they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? John the Baptist said, no, I am not. And yet of John, Jesus said, I say to you that Elijah has already come and his disciples understood that he was referring to John the Baptist. The plain meaning of Malachi's words is that Elijah himself would reappear just before the Messiah began his work, but we now know that this is not the meaning of those words. I hate to say things that make the study of the Bible seem difficult, but God forbid that we should have or give the impression that understanding the scriptures is somehow easy. I remind you that the Bible is the revealing of the character, of the nature, of the will of almighty and holy God, whose ways are beyond our ways, and that we see it, Paul says, through a glass darkly. May our believing that the Bible is the word of God increase our delight in it and heighten our desire to understand it But may our understanding of its depth and complexity make us cautious to declare our conclusions with dogmatic confidence and make us open to that sweet, productive fellowship that results when Christian people are as eager to learn as they are to teach. With Jesus on the Mount of Configuration, we find three kinds of people. There is Moses, the one through whom the great law of the Old Testament was given. There is Elijah, whom many believe represents all of the Old Testament prophets, and with them we find the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the completed gospel was taken out into the world. Here we have the law, the prophets, and the gospel. Here we have the full range of divine revelation, without any part of which our faith is diminished. As Christians, we need to be familiar with the Old Testament law, for in it we learn much of what God requires of us in almost every dimension of life. As Christians, we need to be familiar with the sweet promises and the fiery warnings of the prophets who remind us that when God assured the obedience of great blessing and warned the disobedient of retribution, that he wasn't kidding. And of course, as Christians, we need to be familiar with the New Testament for by it we are reminded of the atoning work of Christ and of his high calling to righteousness for those who would know the benefits of his grace. Moses, Elijah, the apostles, the law, the prophets, the New Testament, all together comprise the sacred scriptures which are the foundation of our faith, a fountain of righteousness and hope springing up to the glory of God, a lamp to our feet, A light to our path. And finally, I want to call our collective attention to the reaction of Peter, James, and John to what they saw and heard on that mountain. Matthew tells us that after they had seen the Lord radically changed in appearance and witnessed his conversation with Moses and Elijah, And heard the voice of God saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, that they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Let's be sure that we remember who these men are. If we had saints in the Presbyterian Church, their names would appear unchallenged on our official list of saints And we wouldn't hesitate for an instant to have churches named St. Peter's, St. James, St. John's. These are men whose faith and usefulness to God were exemplary. Men who fulfilled their lofty callings with grace and courage. John, who in our memories has about him the deserved aura of godly wisdom and holy living. James, a leader of the apostolic church and so strong a presence that a pagan king had him put to death. Peter, a man with human failings like our own, but blessed with great opportunity by the head of the church. We might shake our heads when reminded of the doubts of Thomas. We might smile disapprovingly at the naive questions of Philip. We find it incredible that some held their faith back, even after seeing Jesus risen from the grave. But the faith and usefulness of these three men is beyond all question. In our private prayers, we would be well advised to pray for ourselves that we might be half as useful, a tenth as useful to Christ as three three men were. But when these godly men found themselves in the undeniable presence of the Almighty, they were terrified. And they fell with their faces to the ground. What's happened to God that we no longer tremble in His presence? What's happened to God that we anticipate passing through the grave and into His presence with no more nervousness than we feel planning a vacation to a place we've never visited? What's happened to God that we can sit in His holy presence? holding a piece of bread or a cup of juice in our hands and not shed a tear or feel a lump in our hearts? What's happened to God that we can live from day to day as if those days are our own to be used according to our wishes and pleasures and not for his purposes and glory? Or is it not God who has changed? Is it we? May the words of Moses come alive to us, showing us what is good and noble and true. May the words of the prophets be heard again, convincing us of the holiness and the glory of God and calling us to faithfulness and obedience. May the words of the gospel stand before us, promising mercy to cover our sins, righteousness to guide our steps, and the promise of everlasting life to steady our hearts. Early in the morning, every morning, may we be roused from our slumber by Christ himself. May we hear him say, come with me and go with him to that place where the law and the prophets and the apostles wait. And may we be transfigured by his presence, by his grace and by his truth. Let us pray. Our Father, we remember that you once said to this man, Moses, take off your shoes for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. Cause us to know, our God, that the place where we gather to worship is holy, not by any dedication on our part, not by any names assigned to it, but by your presence when we come together in the name of Jesus. No, God, we pray that you would teach our hearts to fear as you have taught our minds to rejoice in your holiness and truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.